Now, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with making money, but if you look at the landscape today, all of the people who are here to make money, it's coming out of your pocket. Maybe it's not directly out of your pocket in terms of a check that you write. It could be your tax bill. It could be the price of your coffee at Starbucks. But everywhere you look, there's money coming out of your pocket and into the pocket of people who are making money off of the current state of affairs. We're actually not here to make money. We're here for something else. We're here to solve the problem. And I think that's what is different between us. And that's why I give us better odds of fixing it than I do them. In part two, we dive deep into what led Jeannie to create her journalism meets healthcare startup, Clear Health Costs. She explains its genesis from winning a shark tank type pitch to tell people how much things cost in healthcare by combining crowdsourcing and data. With local and national media, she's bringing cost transparency to the US healthcare system and addressing its inequity. We discuss the impact and motivation of the big tech companies in healthcare and how Jeannie and her team have a genuine opportunity to disrupt the healthcare sector and solve consumer problems. Now focusing totally on COVID-19, Jeannie shares her perspectives on the current healthcare crisis. We get into COVID-19 testing and treatment strategies and the broader public health policy. She also touches on some of the federal issues we're facing, the regional coalitions, vaccines and, and the second wave. We talk about the mental health impact of this virus and the upsurge in domestic, spousal and child abuse that's being reported around the world, but also the positive knock-on effect of the adoption of telehealth. Jeannie explains the market impact of clear health costs, how the app works and why it's empowering people to combat the inequity in the system and saving them money. Jeannie also discusses confronting gender and age stereotypes as a female startup founder, the serendipity of her journey and the curiosity that drives her journalistic fervour and, of course, all her quickfire answers. I hope you enjoy the disruptive, counter-cultural character and drive of Jeannie Pinder. And finally, a shout-out to Tina Kelly, one of our previous guests, who recommended Jeannie. And also, we should say, this was recorded over Zoom, so they might hear a couple of small sound glitches. I read that you became a fellow of the Tao Centre for Digital Journalism, I think in around 2015, for work you did on, I think, a study on crowdsourcing in mm-hmm. around journalism. Yeah. Was that a deliberate project you worked on because you saw the, sort of the changes happening in journalism? So Clear Health Costs, um, the company that I run now, I founded... After I left the New York Times, I'd been there for almost 25 years. I volunteered for a buyout in 2009, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I wound up in a class at the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism in entrepreneurial journalism, um, which ultimately led to me winning $20,000 in a Shark Tank-type pitch contest to found this company telling people what stuff costs in healthcare. The idea was always that we would do a combination of reporting, data reporting, and crowdsourcing, asking people to tell us their experiences in healthcare. Like a lot of other things, it took longer to actually materialize than I expected. But that's what we do now is we collect data, not only by using the tools of reporting, but also data reporting and crowdsourcing. That crowdsourcing expertise then led to, among other things, the um, Tau Fellowship, where we did a report on crowdsourcing. And it also led to our business model, where we do this work not only on our home site, but also in partnership with other news organizations. So we partnered with a dozen news organizations. Current partners are WNYC Public Radio here in New York City, the most listened to public radio station in the nation. 
and it's uh, part, its sister publication, Gothamist, a hyperlocal online mm-hmm. daily, and um, also CBS National News. So we partner with other news organizations to do the same kind of reporting in a long-running investigative partnership, consumer-friendly, telling people what stuff costs in healthcare and how to navigate. That's all really well and good, except that as of about six weeks ago, nobody really cares what an MRI costs. We want to know about COVID. So we've pivoted and we're now reporting on all COVID all the time. Yeah, that must be very fast moving and chaotic. Yeah, it's crazy. We were talking about it the other day. It's sort of like um, our beat is the beat of every journalist in America. And we're doing street reporting at a time there's no street. So, So we're competing with everybody. And yet we have these same insurmountable obstacles. We're not going to hospitals, grocery stores, but we're doing reporting that really makes a difference to our communities and our partners. Before we talk about COVID, so this um, fusion, this idea that when you came up with the, the idea for clear health costs, the fusing storytelling data and investigative journalism, was it something that you'd ever, when we, anyone that's an entrepreneur, usually they're scratching their own itch. <laughs> Was there something that you you felt there was an inequity and the, the problem needed to be solved and you could see a way of solving it? Oh, yes, absolutely. People need to know what stuff costs in healthcare. I mean, the system we have is ridiculous. If you've ever interfaced with the healthcare system, you understand that you don't know before, during, or after what it's going to cost. It's a complete mystery. You come out and months later, you get an explanation of benefits that explains exactly nothing. It might have lots of zeros attached to it that you didn't expect. You might have had the conversation as many of us had, like, oh, my God, I'm never going to go to the doctor again. Or how did that happen? You know, a number of things are downstream consequences of this. People have financial issues that, like, they just can't pay. People decide that they're not going to go to the doctor again because they can't afford it. Small problems become big problems. People die. It's a crazy system. And somebody needs to attack it. Now, who would normally attack it? Well, you might think of government. Government has been completely incapable of addressing it. Uh, Regulators, legislators, no. Industry, you might think that industry itself would figure out the inequities and do something to um, address it, but nobody else can do it. Pretty much everybody in the ecosystem is compromised. Obviously, we're talking about disruption the big tech companies are now focused on health. Amazon are probably, um, excuse the pun, primed to right. to step in there. Right. Um, Apple, obviously, with their interface and their health kit, right. are also um, probably in a position to disrupt. But are you hopeful that when Amazon or Apple finally sort of um, really step in, they will bring more transparency and more affordability to the market? Well, let's talk about people's goals, for example, when they come into this marketplace. We've seen any number of um, entities and institutions that say they're really interested in health cost transparency or in solving the problem, but they're actually really here to make money. So what is Apple coming here for? Are they coming here out of pure love for humanity or are they coming to make money? Oh, it's always to make money. I mean, it's the when the shareholders involved. Right. I mean, let's let's face it. Yeah. It's what Amazon do on every market they go after. So, what about Google? What about Amazon? What about all of yeah. them? I mean, are they here out of out of pure love for humanity, or or are they all here to make money? 
Now, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with making money, but if you look at the landscape today, all of the people who are here to make money, it's coming out of your pocket. Maybe it's not directly out of your pocket in terms of a check that you write. It could be your tax bill. It could be the price of your coffee at Starbucks. But everywhere you look, there's money coming out of your pocket and into the pocket of people who are making money off of the current state of affairs. We're actually not here to make money. We're here for something else. We're here to solve the problem. And I think that's what is different between us. And that's why I give us better odds of fixing it than I do them. So talking about the, the current situation and the, the people I are crying out, obviously, for a vaccine. They're crying out for testing. How are you getting your data at the moment and your information as to, to share with people, to show them where they can either, uh, at the moment, presumably, is around getting testing and, and, yeah. and the concern around, I think the government did announce that if anyone that is admitted into hospital, they won't be charged. But going forward, who knows what's going to happen six months from now? You know, I regard that with some suspicion. But yeah, so I guess the way we look at it is that um, there are different ways to collect information. Most of it is reporting. Like some of it is reporting mm -hmm. on Twitter. Some of it is reporting on Reddit. Some of it is just talking to really smart people, like trying to figure out why is it that it's so hard to get tested? Like what's up with that? We should all be able to get tested. I mean, the theory that, we're going to be able to contain the spread of this thing if nobody's being tested really doesn't make any sense at all. So what is government doing about that? The federal government, the state government, the local government. What is industry doing about that? One of the things that we've done is to focus, especially on what can the average Joe or the average genie do in this situation. So among the first uh, coronavirus stories we wrote are, where do you go to get tested and are you going to have to pay to get tested? like giving mm -hmm. people concrete information on how to, how to do this thing. And uh, those stories did really well. Google loves us. We get a lot of great search traffic off of those stories. But as we were doing those stories, we started to realize that people were saying that the tests weren't very accurate. So the tests can have as much as a 30% uh, false negative rate. So here's a story. We heard of um, a person who was admitted to the hospital had classic coronavirus symptoms. The doctors were like, oh yeah, you're a coronavirus patient. They put him into the coronavirus ward and tested him. He'd been tested before coming into the hospital, but his results weren't back, which is another common story. Like it takes a long time for results to come back. So, so they tested him again. They put him in the, in the coronavirus ward. His hospital results came back and he was negative. So they picked him up, took him out of the coronavirus ward and put him in the general population where they thought he belonged. And then his pre-hospital test results came back 11 days later and he was positive. So you have this paradoxical situation where people are, are lusting after tests because they want to know whether they're out of the hospital or in the hospital. Decisions are made based on whether you're positive or negative. And, and yet, if you have tests that don't work very well, then what can we say about that? Why don't the tests work very well? Where is the FDA in this? Where are local institutions? The president announced the other day that he had concluded some kind of arrangement with Abbott Labs to make a testing device the size of a toaster. I believe he actually had it on the podium in the road. Yeah, I remember seeing that, yeah. It doesn't work, or it doesn't work very well. Stories started coming out yesterday about how people who were using it were saying it has a high failure rate. And we were like, yawn. We kind of knew that because we'd written this story about how the tests don't work very well. But 
what does that then mean? Why don't the tests work very well? What should we do about it? Should there not be more testing capability? Another story we heard of uh, um, a doctor who was, had a, a receptionist, I believe, who had exhibited symptoms and who is now past her so-called quarantine period. He wanted to return her to work, but he's supposed to have two negative tests to return her to work. Like that's the, the gold standard. So he tested her. She was negative, positive, negative, positive, negative, positive. So he, he wrote on social media, like I've tested her seven times. Am I supposed to let her back to work? But this question then becomes, well, like if the tests don't work, then what kind of public health policy can we build on this? Why is it that other nations are able to test and we're not? We are the mm -hmm. richest nation in the world, right? Is there something else that we should do? Like you see, for example, in some uh, nations, they have used the thermometer to take yeah. people's temperature before they go into a building. Like maybe that's better than a test. But if you're asymptomatic, then that's not going to work either. <laughs> right. So we've been writing stories like that about what are you supposed to do if you're an average person trying to figure out, well, I need to get a test. Well, do you really? And what is policy? What is your government's policy? And what should practice be out of not only the test, the uh, swab test, there's also a new testing modality called serological testing, where it tests for the presence of antibodies in your blood. Is that any more reliable? Well, we don't know. It seems like the FDA has approved several tests, but maybe not with the considerable amount of testing on the tests. And if somebody has the presence of the antibodies, does that then mean that they are immune? We don't mm -hmm. know. So you have these testing modalities that really, I mean, the, the things that do work are staying at home, washing your hands, wearing a mask. And this hope that we're going to have tests that actually are going to give us you know, the golden ticket for people who have the antibodies can then go to work. Probably not. So that's the kind of reporting that we're doing now. We haven't seen that many people who are doing that kind of reporting. What we're not interested in is the daily press conferences. We're not reporting on a number of other things, but we're really interested in this testing thing. And what does that say to the average Joe or the average genie about how to live in these times? Two questions. One, internationally, do you think anyone's getting their, their strategy right from a testing perspective that we can learn from? It's hard to say. I mean, we've, we've been focusing mostly here on the U.S. because what we've learned over the course of time since 2011 when we launched is that as a tiny startup, if we get diffuse, then we're less effective. But if we can focus huh. on something that's doable... Example, people kept asking us um, when we were talking about health costs, well, you're not, you're not talking about quality. Well, yeah, okay. So price transparency is broken in healthcare, and so is quality transparency broken. Like if there was a good quality metric, we would incorporate it yesterday. There isn't one. We can't fix it anyhow. So we're going to work on price transparency because that's the thing we know is doable and that we can do. So we haven't really done a lot of international reporting on who's doing it right. Do you have any sense of anything that's happening around the country that is giving you hope that there might be some progress being made, either within within the states or within organizations or technology companies that might be sending, creating a, a standard that we can all follow? 
so I think Governor Cuomo, our governor mm-hmm. here in the great state of New York, has been very forthright and very honest about what's going on here. And he's dispensed a lot of information. He's done a lot of interesting things, including helping to weld together this sort of regional coalition. I think that's a very interesting development. The Northeast states, then there's the regional coalition in the West, California, Washington, Oregon. Yesterday, there was a regional coalition in the Midwest of governors who agreed that they were going to attack this problem together. They excluded the great state of Iowa, where the governor has refused to wholeheartedly embrace um, social distancing and sheltering in place, along with the governor of the great state of South Dakota right next door. They both of them have really followed basically the Trump script from the very beginning, the early days. So I think these sort of regional coalitions have a lot of potential power to supplant what we see as an inadequate response from our federal government, which is weird. I mean, if you stop and think about it. Where do you think things will be if, uh, leaving aside South Dakota and Iowa, I mean, obviously they would change their, their tune if there were... Uh, breakouts of significant size in their states, and they would probably start following the same approach that's been adopted in these right. with Como and Newsom. Where do you think we'll be three months from now? I mean, if we if we assume that there will be some form of return to, I don't want to say normalcy because I don't think there will be that, but when we get back to some form of commercial activity restarting, uh, whether it be uh, people going back to work a couple of days a week or some form of restaurants opening again, I don't think we'll have sport. But do you think that we'll, by that point, we'll have some form of strategy in place for ongoing testing? And what's your your sense of where we'll be when, when vaccine comes along, if there'll be um, transparency around pricing when it finally emerges? So I think the vaccine, if we're lucky, we'll get it in a year. Probably it could be more like 18 months. As far as looking at it in the future, it's actually pretty murky, but a few data points. There's a, a big educational institution in New York. I don't think they're public yet, but they've announced to their uh, instructors that they're not going back to the classroom until January, and they're not alone. So I think you know the idea that there could be this kind of second wave, if if in fact social distancing ends too soon, or if uh, people who have reason to believe that they're not infectious then go back, there'll be like another boom. Predicting what will happen, I think it's really hard. In answer to the question about what will the reactions be, I think they'll be sort of state by state, region by region, institution by institution. Like you can see a big bank deciding that it's going to let maybe people who have negative tests come back to work and then decide that that's probably a really bad idea. It's very, very hard to predict at this point. I do think that um, one of the things that we're seeing is uh, people are really fed up with being cooped up at home, rightly so, and that there's pressure then to kind of relieve that in some way. We hear from um, the Rose Garden that um, we're going to open up in, you know, a month or something like that. I think that's ridiculous. I don't think that's a, a good idea at all, and most scientists will agree with that. What's your, um, just your own view, and maybe what you're picking up from your, your network of, I don't know if you call them journalists, reporters, or in terms of the, the mental health impact that's being felt 
enormous. I mean, obviously, obviously we're all feeling this sort of the, the cabin fever of being stuck in an apartment or even if some garden is, it puts limits on you. But we've got, we've got a couple of clients um, from our business that are psychotherapists and they've been talking about how the, the rapid increase in abuse and not just child abuse is being felt around the country. How are you reporting on that? And what do you think the impact is going to be on an ongoing basis? Yeah, we're really interested in that. We haven't, that's not our primary focus of reporting right now, but that's when we have these sort of baskets of things that we'd like to address. And that's one thing that we'd like to address. Uh, what we're hearing is indeed, as you say, there's a great deal of anguish out there and people who find the situation intolerable. There is child abuse, there is spousal abuse, domestic mm-hmm. abuse, and there's really not enough supply to accommodate the demand. However, one of the things that we've noticed is a huge rise in telehealth. Yeah. And that's something that actually really happened pretty much overnight with the coronavirus epidemic. It used to be that in healthcare, people would say, well, the magic happens when the doctor and the patient are together in the same room (laughs) and he's looking into her eyes and he's seeing, you know, her heavy breathing or whatever that you know, any telehealth visit is simply not effective and therefore not reimbursable. Like we won't pay for it because it's not effective. And now all of a sudden the doctor is like, I don't want you anywhere near me. Get away from me. Just call the insurance companies, the government, pretty much everybody is now paying for telehealth visits. Doctors of my acquaintance are saying, we've been saying this for years, that we really wanted to have this happen. The conversations are better. It's crazy to assume that people are going to come to a doctor's visit. They're going to take several hours off of work. They're going to travel to my office. They're going to sit there and wait for me. I'm going to get held up by another patient. We'll have five minutes together in the same room where I'm staring into the computer and recording whatever. And then they'll travel back to their jobs, having taken this huge chunk of time off when really we can have a much better interaction on the phone, on FaceTime. Nobody would listen Mm -hmm. to us. We've been waiting for this and now it's happened. And I think that's one of the great lessons that we have learned and something that will stay with us if we're trying to make predictions about what happens after coronavirus. And and that's a huge help in in mental health. I'd love to get your your perspective on the impact that where people are discovering through the transparency that you're bringing to the market, where they can get affordable, whether it be MRIs or mammograms or uh, COVID testing. How are the insurance, how are the, the companies that are providing this reacting? Because presumably when there is transparency in a marketplace, where there's demand and then the, for the suppliers have to then adjust um, and the market takes over, presumably prices will start to drop eventually. If we were in a completely transparent market mm-hmm. where people had full access to see in their locale where they could get the lowest cost for, let's just say, I've got a, uh, and I, as at the moment, Achilles tendon injury and I wanted treatment on it. Not that I can get it at the moment, mm-hmm. but if I could, then I would obviously go to the lowest cost and then the other suppliers would have to reduce their prices. Right. So are you seeing the beginnings of this? Are, are you oh, yeah. hopeful that that will happen? Yeah, yeah. It's happening. So a couple of places that we've seen it, for example, if you need an MRI, I mean, we can always have the question about whether you really need an MRI on your Achilles, but let's just say you need an MRI. You can now either choose to have it at the hospital where your doctor practices, 
or you can go to a self-standing radiology center, which tends to be less expensive. We had a woman in New Orleans, for example, one of our partnerships there, uh, she needed an MRI. She scheduled it at a hospital and was told that it would be $4,538 on her insurance policy. She then went to our database and looked at the same MRI and found it for $672.86. In her state? In her city, a few miles away. So, so these kind of disparities are things that we see all the time. People don't really know, like, like you're astounded, but we see this all the time. The same simple blood test could be $19 one place or 522 a few blocks away. The same echocardiogram could be like $250 in Brooklyn and $2,100 in Manhattan. So if you have access to this information and you can look, you might not want the cheapest one. You might want to take like the second cheapest, the way you'd offer order the second cheapest <laughs> bottle of wine at a restaurant. But having the knowledge that you can save hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, then is something that people are tumbling to. It's changing consumer behavior and it's also changing provider behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've started to see hospitals that are announcing their prices because they know that they can compete on pricing. So can you just explain your business model, how you make money? Oh, uh, yes. Our partners pay us to supply information to them. We build an interactive software um, that's a copy of what we have on our home website. We call it a community-created guide to health costs. So it's a two-sided thing. One side, you can contribute your prices. One side, you can search prices. We call it, it's like a mashup of Kayak and the Waze traffic app because we have reported prices and then we have crowdsourced stuff. We also include database uh, pricing information from the government so that you can really have a 360 degree view of pricing. And then our community members share data in there that we will use their stories to do news reports about how to save money, um, how to negotiate, how to navigate. We had in New Orleans, for example, there was a woman who came in with a story about how she had a sore shoulder. So she had a doctor's uh, visit that wound up with a diagnosis of frozen shoulder and a bill for $160, which seemed fair, steep but fair. And then they followed it up with a bill for $1,434.01 for the facility fee because the clinic that she went to is part of the Tulane University Medical Center empire. Now, she didn't know that. She wasn't anywhere near the campus. But this facility fee then became the backbone of a story about what is a facility fee? Where does it come from? Your bills are mysterious. Here, we're going to reveal the mystery of facility fees. What should you do about it? Do you have to pay it? Is your insurance company going to pick it up? Can you avoid it? So facility fees 101. And we help advise our partners on how to put together a story like that. Here's how you can find an expert on facility fees. Here's how to read that explanation of benefits that she sent in. Because you've seen them, they're massively confusing, right? They're just baffling. So we supply all of that expertise to our partners over the course of these investigations, and they pay us for that. And just in terms of the the growth and the awareness of, of clear health costs, where are you in your journey? Where do you want to be in three, five years from now? What would your hope be? My goal is to put myself out of business. 
that we will no longer be necessary. Yeah, we'll maybe, see. Maybe as it's a completely separate <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm conscious of your time. I want to get into asking about serendipity. Where has it occurred, and has it impacted on your on the journey you've been on? Serendipity. I mean, you could say that dropping out of high school was serendipitous. I mean, when I did it at the time, people were like, "Oh my God, you're a high school dropout." I did lose a job once. I got fired from a job at the Associated Press. I thought it was the end of the world, but it actually turned out to be a really, it wasn't the right job for me. It sent me in a completely different direction. It was actually a good thing, but I didn't know it at the time. Sometimes when things happen to you, you're like, oh my God, this is the end of the world. But it really wasn't. But the thing with being a, a journalist, you, you are a, you're an entrepreneur, but you're a journalist still at heart, is that you're enduringly curious Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. How do you maintain or do, what would your perspective on when it, when it is just part of your DNA? It's something that a lot of people lack, particularly it's one of the things that obviously we're fascinated around the whole aspect of curiosity and creativity. And some people say it's, it's nature, nurtured. Or, you're, you've come from a family where it's, it's obviously nurtured in you. Can you reflect on, on curiosity and how you encourage it in others? Mm. You know, we were just talking about this the other day, about asking the naive question. When the president comes out with this thing that looks like a toaster, you're like, oh, that's so cool. Like, it's a great headline. But does it really work? We had um, something come in the other day about an at-home coronavirus test. Well, no, wait, 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 wait. If everybody's having so much trouble getting tested, then what is it with this? Does it even really work? And of course, it's a scam. But asking that naive question again around, um, let's say, for example, we have to get tested. You know, everybody has to get tested. Where I live now in Pelham and where you are in New York, Mm -hmm. people want to get tested. They want to know. It's an obvious thing. I want to know. I want to get tested. I want to get tested. But wait, does the test really work? It's like asking that naive question is really important. And sometimes people will make fun of you if you ask the naive question, but sometimes you get really great answers like, well, no, it's actually works about 70% of the time. Wait a minute, we're building public policy on the idea that we're able to test people yay or nay, and yet it doesn't really work. So what about that? And why aren't other people writing about this? That's I'm really interested mm-hmm. in that. Essentially, one of the things was taught early on in advertising was to apply the five whys when someone mm-hmm. tells you something, you ask, but why? And then, and why? And if, once you get to the fifth why, you really right. get to the, the, the core, the nugget right. of the, right. the truth. That's really good advice. There's a similarity there with asking naive questions. Yeah. You're right. Uh-huh. I'm just going to get into the quickfire questions, but setbacks. Um, there's a quote we've used before, which is, it's not the circumstances that define you, it's your response. Uh, can you cite a response to a set of circumstances that have been pivotal in your life? Ah. Uh-huh. One of the things that never really occurred to me until probably even just a couple of years ago is that I'm really motivated when people tell me you can't do something. I never knew that. I never had any idea that that was why I have these sort of, you know, you could call it tilting at windmills or you could call it like leaving an assured paycheck at the New York Times, the world's premier news organization to found a startup. But I do think that that's something that motivates me as far as what is it that gets you going? That's one of the things that gets me going. And it's happened so many times over the course of building this startup from 2011. People are like, you're never going to be able to do that. Powerful forces will put you out of business. You're too old to found a startup. 
I had a lot of that. You're a woman. You can't do a tech startup. People with vaginas can't do tech. Everybody knows that. Like, where is the 20 year old with the, no, sorry, the 17 year old with the hoodie and the penis. And I'm like, Mm. I'm sorry. (laughs) Like I must have misplaced him. I don't think he's here anywhere. But that sort of conventional wisdom that like, you know, you can't do it because I think is something that um, if more people questioned that we'd have a better world, maybe. Totally agree. So um, what principles do you stand by? Uh, Truth, justice. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Also, for journalists, we sometimes say afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. Oh, that's lovely. That's what we do as journalists. I've never heard that. Yeah. I forget who said that. I want to say it's Mark Twain. I forget who said uh-huh. it. It's not me. Yeah, but it's brilliant. It's a great principle to stem, uh, to live by. Um, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, uh, but turned out to be the right decision other than leaving the New York Times? Oh, that. So I went through seven and a half years of infertility. I was never supposed to have children. This was, for some reason, the cup was going to pass from my lips, but I kept at it anyhow. And now I have these amazing 26-year-old twin daughters. Um, I raised them as a single mom. That was another one of those those things. It was like, you can't do that. And I'm like, wait, of course I can. Okay, that's that's wonderful. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I think it's um, exercise. So I, I currently swim most mornings when my gym is open, but I've always been a jock, uh, horseback riding. Um, I did rowing for a while, distance bike riding, nature. I love gardening, being out in nature, books, love reading, the kitchen. I find a lot of inspiration in the kitchen. What's the one problem worth solving? People should know what stuff costs in healthcare. <laughs> yeah, you're solving it. Yeah. If you could return to one night, one day in history, where, oh, when, yes. and with who? I looked at that, and I have to tell you, there there were so many, and then I stopped doing that. Because how can you climb back up that many decision trees? How, do you want to, how could you spend that much of your time looking in the rearview mirror when there's so yeah. much stuff in the front? So I, I don't think I do that anymore. I used to. Good answer. What's a question that no one asks you that you wish they would? No answer for that. Okay. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My daughters. Oh my God. My daughters. The whole state of parenthood, but particularly my daughters who are like, you know, certainly free with their opinions and very honest about whether I'm performing up to their expectations. What do they do? One of them is, um, she lives in Los Angeles. She works for a, a nonprofit called the Trevor Project. Oh, yes, I know that. Yeah, Yeah. it's a great organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, They do counseling for uh, troubled LGBT um, youth. She did Mm -hmm. do uh, phone counseling for a while, and now she's in a supervisory position. My other daughter actually just started working for me here at Claire Health Cost. She's an amazing journalist. Uh, I'm very proud of her. Cut from the same cloth, yeah. Yeah, family business. Yeah, there you go. What happened to the, the Grinnell... Herald, was it? The Grinnell Herald Register. It's in my family's hands. My sisters run it, or it runs them, depending on Uh what day you're talking about it. They're amazing. It's one of the few remaining small-town independent newspapers in the great state of Iowa. Okay. Being a a, a non-conforming startup entrepreneur, how do you keep up with technology, given that technology is absolutely core to your business? I have to. I mean, there's no 
there are no choices. I had to learn how to build software, to manage a software production thing. I know a lot more about technology than most people. And it's because I had to, learning on the job. You have to. There's no choice. Our impossible question, what would your advice be to someone that's being told, no, that's impossible? And then regardless of age, whether you're a 17-year-old or you're a 50-year-old. Don't take no for an answer. Really, don't take no for an answer. When people tell you you can't do that or you shouldn't do that, go ahead and try it. Sometimes you might make a mistake. In fact, we all make mistakes, but that's how we learn. Do you ever go to karaoke song? No, I don't do karaoke. (laughs) Good. Best Netflix, Amazon series or anything you've watched recently you'd recommend? So I just watched um, all of Homeland. I'd missed that um, somehow. I'm not a huge TV person, but I do find mm-hmm. that the sheltering in place sort of leads to Netflix binge watching. And mm-hmm. I just started um, The Sopranos, which I also missed, which is great uh, TV. I wonderful. had no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on. I'm. I'm just getting up to date with Carrie Matheson's Adventures in Homeland. So yeah, yeah. it's a good one. Um, what book would you like us to offer listeners that come up with the best comment in the comment section? A book that I've been meaning to reread, but I think I need to wait until the pandemic is a little bit further out. Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sowers, Hmm. S-O-W-E-R-S. It's a dystopian novel about what happens after something like this. And it is absolutely blood curdling. And yeah, everybody should read it. Hmm. This sounds like a a Margaret Atwood type. Uh, Yeah. 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 Okay. And it's called The Parable of the Sowers. S-O-W-E-R-S, yes, Octavia Butler. Okay. And final question, who should we interview next? I have so many people that you should interview. I think um, B. Arthur would be really great. There's also two or three people from the TED residency who would be really great. I could send you a list. Who's B? She's a startup founder, psychotherapist. She's really dynamic, interesting, really, really, really fun. She's on her, I think, her third startup now. She's remarkable. Okay. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left. I usually just wrap up. But before I do wrap up, I just want, where do you think? Uh, I'm going to send you a link because I, I was listening to um, Jonathan Haidt. He's a lecturer. I think he works at, uh, he's at NYU. And he was um, being interviewed by Scott Galloway. But he was talking about the next, this, we've hit a point. Uh, this, this 2020 is an inflection point. And the next decade is going to be very different. We're probably going to see a further erosion of our democracy and a, a complete untangling uh, of the global uh, economy and a return. What, what's your sense of where we're going to be, where we're going? I, you know, honestly, I'm not a futurist. I don't have a really good idea. I'd love to read that or I'd love to hear it. We're, I'm having a series of conversations with friends about just that topic. I think everybody's wondering. Nobody knows a series of forums. Um, there's one with a group of uh, women that I'm a part of where we're all talking like, where does your business go? What does your business look like? I know what it looks like right now, but what does it look like in six months or in you know a year or five years? So I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's one that we should all engage. I don't have any answers right mm. now. Because I can't, what I can't understand is you sit and look at the, the unemployment figures and then you see the market going up and going, what, if, where is this disconnect? Right. You know, regardless of economic stimulus, it's just the hard reality that I can't see 
corporate earnings being <laughs> uh, seeing a massive turnaround in the second and third or, or third and fourth quarters. It's no. utterly bizarre. And then, of course, no. I mean, coming I coming from the advertising background, I've got so many friends I've been speaking to the last few days about just the impact on agencies and your core part of your business. So I think there's going to be a wholesale reimagination of what life and the economics and just business is going to be like going forward. And I, I totally right. agree with you. I think it's something we should all be engaging in that sort of conversation. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, the advertising industry is going to wonder whether it really needs to be selling what it's selling to people. Journalism has to think carefully about, you know, we're more important than ever right now, but our business model just doesn't work really over the long run. And um, let's say we see, you know, places in the economy where there's a need, there needs to be testing kits. Like mm-hmm. maybe out of all those 30 million people who are unemployed, maybe a hundred of them can go help make better testing kits. Like uh-huh. how to more rationally apply the needs of the nation and um, the available resources, which we have not done rationally. I don't know okay. who would be in charge of that. I, I nominate you. I think you should be in charge of that. <laughs> there's a great, there's a great, I'll, I'll go and send you a couple of links right after this. There's a, a, a great article I posted on LinkedIn um, that I read called Look Out for the Gaslighting. And it's, and I saw that. Did you see that one? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's such yeah, a good article. That. Yeah. There's some yeah. great, yeah. The, that's a great thing. There's some wonderful, there's some wonderful writing happening at the moment that we all have to, uh, uh, trying to keep up with it, I find it incredibly hard uh, just now. It's just so many things coming in at you. But anyway, yeah. I know you've got to go. So I just want to thank you for your time, Jeannie. I really appreciate it. And, um, and to acknowledge you for the amazing work that you're doing, for your bringing information and knowledge and access to people that are, have, are faced with inequity and misinformation and injustice. And to thank you for your asking these naive questions and to continue with that spirit of the countercultural movement that obviously started in, at a young age and that we're in dire need of at the moment. So well, thank you so much. Yeah, up the revolution, I say. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. This is a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This show is a Fabrica Collective production and is produced by Bettina McKelly and Elaine Castillo-Keller. For now... Be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.